This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for January 21st, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, we have staff writer Kelly Servick. We talk about the ethics of doing research on patients undergoing invasive brain surgery or who have brain implants. Next, we have researcher Ashley Thomas. We talk about how the willingness to share saliva can be used as a proxy for the closeness of a relationship and also can give us insights into the minds of babies. Human brains are, lucky for us, protected by our very hard skulls. These bony shields also keep researchers out. But less so lately. Brain surgeries, brain implants are on the rise, and scientists are getting more chances than ever before to get close to a living brain. In this week's issue, staff writer Kelly Servick wrote about this window of opportunity and the rise in ethical concerns that comes along with it. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Sarah. So first principles, no one is opening up a human skull, a living person's head to study their brain. We're talking about taking a peek in there while surgery is happening for other reasons. Right. It is very, very exceedingly rare that someone would do an invasive brain surgery just to ask a basic research question. But there are people who have to have brain surgery anyway to treat some medical condition. And that represents this really special opportunity to record what's happening in their brain and use it to ask some other question about how the brain works. Mm -hmm. I saw this on TV as a kid. I think it was like 60 Minutes or something. I remember it was like a news program. There was a patient, they were undergoing surgery, and a researcher was talking to them, probing their brain and talking to them at the same time, trying to learn more. This has been going on, but I'm thinking that things have changed a lot since I was a kid. Are there different reasons that people are having these brain surgeries today than they were back then? Yeah, it's sort of wild to think about somebody being awake during a brain surgery and responding in that way, but that has been going on for a long time. I think what's new is that more and more applications are being explored, particularly for devices that stimulate the brain, um, these sort of sets of fine wires that can sit right up against your neurons and, and deliver electrical stimulation. In the U.S., that approach is already used to treat certain movement disorders, certain types of epilepsy, sometimes obsessive compulsive disorder. 
but it's being studied for others, including depression and, and other conditions. And so that could represent more and more opportunities for researchers to go in and record at the same time. And there's also more funding than ever for doing this kind of sidecar brain research. Yeah, the National Institutes of Health has, through its brain initiative, has sort of set up this special funding track that is specifically for people doing invasive human neuroscience studies. There are a couple of different situations where, where that might happen. And one of them is when people have intractable epilepsy and they undergo a special type of monitoring procedure where researchers put temporary electrodes in their brains to find the source of the seizures. And then another group is the people who are getting devices implanted long-term for some reason. And researchers can take data from those devices if they record brain data, or in other cases, they can capitalize on the surgery itself, like we were talking about, while the skull is, is momentarily open. You know, we can see the brain kind of with imaging techniques, MRIs, those kinds of things. And electrodes can get pretty close, like on the surface of the scalp. Why is getting even closer better? So it's because these electrodes are listening for the very delicate electrical activity of neurons as they're firing their signals to each other. I had a job in a research lab as an undergrad where I was supposed to make sure that those EEG probes, those little sponges were like sitting really nicely against the, <laughs> the scalp so that they could pick up those signals. Yeah. But as much as you wet those little things with a syringe and, and try to make them nice and stuck on there you've still got this hunk of bone that is blocking you from picking up the signal. And similarly with other technologies that you could do outside the head, like functional MRI, you just can't be as precise about where that signal is coming from and the timing of it unless you go right in there. When participants are doing these experiments, whether they're undergoing surgery or they're hanging around with an implant, what kinds of things are researchers asking the patients to do? All kinds of interesting and bizarre things. They might be asking a person to do a really simple task, like move your eyes to this point and move them back or look away from this thing. So that would tell you something about how the brain is making quick decisions. Another example I learned about researchers were having someone watch little movies while they were in an epilepsy monitoring unit. Those movies were supposed to evoke different emotions. And the researchers were interested in correlating different brain states with these different emotional states. So in that case, that actually helped them develop a brain stimulation technique for treating depression, which was not something that this participant in the study had. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point that a person may have surgery for this reason or implant for that reason. And the research being done with them as a subject, as a participant, is completely unrelated to the disorder that's put them in the position that they're in. Yeah. Researchers, I think, generally have some ambition to treat a disease or, you know, improve the lives of patients, but they're not testing a treatment in these cases. It's not like a clinical trial. And they're often asking something really basic about how the brain remembers or navigates or moves. And those are relevant to diseases, but they don't always have an immediate translational promise. Hmm. And that's an ethical concern because if you're undergoing maybe an experimental cancer therapy, there is a benefit for you. You might get better. You're also helping other people. You're also helping science, but it adds up across those categories. This is not like that at all. I think it raises questions about what is in it for the participant and sort of what motivates people to do this because many people do. And I, I think some of the research that's emerging now shows that it is partly about helping others and growing the knowledge that 
could spare future people from future suffering. But they've also revealed that people find this really rewarding. And often they're in a position where they're not doing much. They're stuck in a hospital room and it can be sort of a a fulfilling thing to participate in. And I think that's really interesting and, and something I might not have assumed going into this. Another ethical concern that you raise is that the person doing the surgery, the doctor, this person's doctor, can also be the researcher that's pursuing these questions. How does that affect a patient when their doctor wants to do research on them? In many cases, though not all, the surgeon is also the investigator on the study. And if they're the one inviting the patient into the study, that's called dual role consent in the bioethics world. And it is a fraught topic. You can imagine that if you are preparing for a big, scary brain surgery and your doctor, who you think of as the person taking care of you, says, do you want to do this other thing? It's for research to help us out with this other thing. You might feel a sense of obligation or at least obedience to your doctor. Or in some situations, it could get confusing, like what is part of my care and what's part of the experiment? And can I say no? Can I tell this person to buzz off or is this part of my care? So dual role consent has historically been thought of as really problematic. But in these situations, your surgeon might be the most equipped to answer your questions about how the surgery and the experiments relate and what the risks are. So if they have to pass off those questions to some other person who's not as familiar with brain surgery, that doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence either. What kind of risks would a participant face? That's also something that is really hard to be certain about and to articulate really clearly. So in some of these situations, it's just a person who's in a a monitoring unit who's doing some tasks. They might get tired out. They might not want to do it. There's not a lot of additional risk there. When the experiment is happening during a surgery, it prolongs the surgery by 20 or 30 minutes, not by a huge amount. But we do know that longer surgeries have more risks than very short ones. And so there are questions about whether in this sort of intermediate stage, whether risk increases in any meaningful way. Is this a window that's going to close? Are we going to see surgeries that are more faster, maybe more laparoscopic almost, or move away from implants and this won't be a thing that researchers will be able to do in the future? That's a great question. I have an example where the window kind of closed for some groups. There is a move in some groups to make certain surgeries for deep brain stimulation devices no longer require the patient to be awake. And if the patient isn't awake, then they're not going to be able to do the task (laughs) that you have for them and, and answer your questions. Right. And so groups that have made that move, you just can't do that particular kind of experiment. But in general, when I was asking, I I asked that question a lot, like, oh, did you ever just like lose an opportunity because the state of the art changed? And was that ever really hard? Generally, people would say yes, but some other window opens or there's some other device or there's some other way. So I think things are shifting, but it's never totally impossible. Yeah, it is interesting how the state of the medical interventions changing drives what kinds of research questions people ask. Yep. One really common source of epileptic seizures is the temporal lobe. And I think that that's sort of reflected in the number of researchers who are asking questions about that part of the brain, um, because you can't just go boring into any part of the brain that you want to. So that's one thing I found so interesting about this area is that researchers are really thinking about what questions can I ask to make the most of this really rare opportunity? Yeah. And how easy is this going to be to replicate? That's another big question. 
because the other thing about this field is that it's really high profile. If you get this kind of data, you're very likely to get a high profile publication out of it. And for that reason, there is not a lot of incentive to ask the same question that someone else already asked in their study. Sample sizes are small, too, and you may never see that part of the brain again in the next five years. Right. Yeah, there are subtleties in where the electrodes are positioned that make it really hard to align participants. Wow. So there's a lot going on here. I think that even that like lack of replication can also fall in the ethical questions category here. What do researchers do, funders do, other parties involved in this do to prevent abuses, to make sure that patients are treated well and that the science progresses in a safe way? I think a lot of times it comes down to setting ground rules. And there is this consortium of researchers in this field who are funded by the National Institutes of Health who have been trying to convene and publish on these ethical questions. When it comes to consent, I think there are some ideas out there about how to deal with that. Research teams that are using a hybrid model where the surgeon is involved in the consent process to answer questions, but they're not actually doing the signing and the formal consent. But yeah, I think in general, it's a lot of everyone figuring out <laughs> where the lines are and communicating with each other about what's okay. One thing you pointed out and I think is true is that you actually, you can't do the most shiny, most technologically advanced neuroscience on a living person. You just can't do it. You can't introduce genes. You can't do optogenetics. But we're still learning a lot from this approach, even though we kind of have to keep it basic. I think that's true in general. I think mice are easier to come by and easier to manipulate than humans, but data from a human means a little bit more. Yeah. And I think that that's really thrown into stark relief in this field where if you had a mouse, you could make genetic changes to their cells and make them reactive to light and activate the particular subset of cells that you're interested in and bam, cause and effect. We turned this on and this happened. That type of a study is amazing and off limits to a person. But again, you know, it's sort of about compromising in order to get to the, the absolute source, the real thing you want to know about, which is the human brain. We know it's there, but we can't have access to it in so many ways. So close yet so far. Exactly. What new areas of research is this opening up? I mean, if it really is taking off and there's just so many more brains out there for people to study, what can they do that they were never able to do before? Because these questions are so basic, you know, I think sometimes it's hard to look ahead and say, now we'll, we'll have this answer or that answer. But I can say, I know there's a lot of optimism about implanted devices that people can use at home. And that's something that hasn't really sort of broken into the mainstream yet is collecting data as someone goes about their day. Wow. Um, and that might be sort of a new category of questions you could ask. One researcher mentioned to me, like when someone has an aha moment, you might be able to have them say like, oh, I had an aha moment at 4.15 on Tuesday. <laughs> and you could look at <laughs> what that looks like. So they could be on Twitch live streaming their life. And then we can also be looking at this super specific recording at the same time of brain activity. I think eventually, if people are willing to open up their data, there are going to be a lot of questions about privacy around this. And I'm not sure we're quite there yet. But yeah, it's an amazing type of information. All right. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Kelly Cervik is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have researcher Ashley Thomas. We talk about how baby spit isn't gross, really. Well, for some people. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. 
change your job, and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Have you spent any time with a baby lately? Were you in awe, eager to cuddle and kiss, maybe even change a diaper? Or were you slightly horrified by the drool and other bodily fluid seeping out of this new human? Your feelings on the matter might actually depend on your closeness with the baby. And that closeness, the sense of how people relate to the baby or how people relate to each other, these are important things for the baby to know about. Hi, Ashley. Hi. You have a very young child as a researcher on saliva and relationships with children. Is this kind of coming up a lot in your life these days? I actually thought of this idea when I was pregnant, but I had no idea how much saliva sharing would really be a part of the caregiving relationship until I had my own infant. And my my husband at this point is super sick of me filming spontaneous interactions that happen like when my daughter sticks her fingers in his mouth or feeds us. Once you start noticing it, it's really, really everywhere. Do people send you a lot of spit-related media? Oh, all the time. I love it. There's also a really good scene from Seinfeld where Elaine like really wants to ask someone out on a date and she gives him her water bottle yeah. and he wipes it off. Oh. <laughs> and so she's like, no, I can't ask you out on a date now. Like, obviously he's not into me. <laughs> the question at hand here is how do babies or toddlers think about the relationships around them? Do they know when others are close to each other? And how do they tell if others are in a close relationship? So far, it looks like these bodily fluids that I mentioned in my intro may be part of the answer. But let's start with why are you asking this question? Why is a baby's ability to evaluate closeness important? Infants are born into this really complex social world. There's a bunch of existing social relationships. And one thing that they need to do eventually is figure out how all these different relationships work. And the interesting thing about studying infants and what they understand about social relationships is they haven't really had a lot of experience yet with them, right? So we tested eight to 10 month olds. They have some experience with this kind of thing and some experience observing others, but they don't have a ton of experience. And so it allows us to kind of figure out what the nature of this way of thinking is. If infants can do it, it probably means that it's easy to learn or that it might even be there from the time that we're born. So let's get to the saliva. <laughs> there is a lot of spit in this paper. Why might this be a proxy for close relationships, for intimacy? There's people who have hypothesized that it might be something to do with sharing germs. It might be beneficial if the people who you're close to are immune to the same pathogens as you. But we don't actually ask that 
And I don't have a good answer to it. But what we do know is that it is common across cultures. So if you look at different cultures, it's a really common cue that people who you're willing to share saliva with are people who you feel close to. Right. So, oh, you can have some of my drink. You're my sister. Uh, Get away from my drink. You're my coworker. Exactly. For one set of experiments in this study, you showed scenarios to babies and toddlers. Who was interacting with who in these different scenarios? What we did in the first experiment we ran is we showed infants who are between the ages of eight and 10 months and toddlers between the ages of 16 and 18 months, these two interactions. And in one, a woman shares food with a puppet, but she doesn't just share food. She takes a bite of the food, puts the same bite in the puppet's mouth, and then takes another bite of that food. So it implies saliva sharing. And the other interaction was the same puppet, but a different woman. And this was a totally cooperative and pro-social interaction. It involved passing a ball back and forth, but it didn't have that specific thing of, of sharing saliva. And then how do you ask the babies who they think is closer? Yeah. So then what we do is we ask, given these two different interactions, who do the babies expect to respond to the puppet's distress? And one kind of interesting thing is that we were actually really inspired by non-human primate literature that asks if baboons are reasoning about individuals that they know, for example, somebody that's in their social group, and they hear the distress call of that individual, they actually look at the family members, that baby, as though they expect that person to respond. So that's what we are inspired by in this study. But rather than testing sort of what babies know about the relationships that they're in or that they've had direct experience with, we show them what kind of relationship these individuals have with each other. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking to the spit sharer to help the distress puppet? So they looked first at the one who had had the saliva sharing interaction when the puppet's upset as though they kind of anticipate that it's going to be that one who's going to respond. That's very cool. Other interactions that the babies were shown involved sharing a ball with the puppet, no saliva at all. So what if the puppet wants the ball? Who does the baby look to to solve that problem for the puppet? Do the babies expect it to be, you know, the closest person, the one they think of as family or somebody else? Yeah, so that's a great question. So one thing we asked is, do toddlers have specific expectations about what kinds of things people do in these relationships? Or do they kind of just expect like, if you're in this thick kind of relationship, you're going to respond to anything that your social partner does. And the way we asked that is we had the puppet ask for the ball or a ball. And when the puppet asked for a ball, they look at the person who had shared a ball with the puppet previously, which suggests that they don't just think like, if I have a thick relationship with you, I'm going to do anything to help you. It suggests that it's really specific to these specific behaviors. Well, let's take a moment to find thick relationships here. I've been using closeness or intimacy, but this is a little bit more of a specific term. So we use the term thick partially because it's used in other fields. So sociology uses that term. We're also inspired by this philosopher named Marguerite who uses the term. And by thick, we do mean close or intimate or family-like. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the experiment for one more question here. How do we know when they say, oh, the puppet's upset, it was sharing food with that woman, so that's the close relationship. How do we know it's the saliva and not the food? Do you know what I mean? Yep. We actually took food out of the picture and we showed infants and toddlers these novel interactions that they probably didn't have a lot of experience with. And this time what we did is we had one woman and two puppets. In one of the interactions, she sticks her finger in her mouth, 
sticks her finger in the puppet's mouth and then puts her finger back in her mouth. That's the saliva sharing interaction. And the other one, she touches her forehead, touches the puppet's forehead, and then touches her own forehead. And so they look kind of similar, but only one of them involves saliva sharing. This time it's one woman and two puppets. This is important, right? Because we wanted to know if it matters sort of who's doing the action. And so here the woman is doing the action to the two puppets. And here we ask which puppet the toddlers expect to respond to the woman's distress. And so is it the same story if it's food or if it's saliva that's perceived by the infants and toddlers as a closer relationship? Yeah. So we find the same pattern of results here. That puppet who had had the mouth-to-mouth interaction, infants and toddlers expect to respond to that woman's distress. You know, when I was reading this paper, I kept thinking about this concept of disgust. You're never going to drink from something you find on the subway, right? That would be super gross. Sharing a few sips with a significant other, no big deal. How does disgust, our sense of disgust, fit in with this idea that sharing saliva helps us understand the basis of relationships? We don't really have a lot of evidence that babies and toddlers this age get disgusted by things. So it's interesting that even despite sort of the disgust reaction of thinking about doing this in the wrong relationship, that they still are able to infer that people have a relationship when they do this action. Mm -hmm. And that we as adults completely ignore disgust when it comes to close relationships, right? Yeah, totally. And in fact, you can kind of think like, Say you have a friend relationship with someone and you want to turn it into a romantic relationship. One way to test out whether someone else is into it is to see whether they're okay with sharing saliva. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) So we have, you know, some kind of reciprocal disgust uh, saliva sharing relationship (laughs) uh, with closeness. So the babies are kind of picking up on that. Yeah, exactly. This focus on swapping fluids, and you did mention, um, you know, sociology and philosophy here, it basically, it moves these signs of close relationships out of genetics or the physiological. You know, we aren't smelling genetic relatedness. We're not seeing similar features between a puppet and an actress. You know, these babies are watching actions. Is that important? Yeah. And one reason why this is important is because depending on the specific environment that an infant might find herself in, it's actually going to be really different who's considered family. Basically, as long as anthropology has been a field, they've noticed that the correlation between genetic relatedness and who's considered family isn't the same across cultures. And the way that people structure families is really different across cultures. So this might help infants figure out in a different way who should be considered family rather than who they might be genetically related to. And that's a lot more explicit for older kids, for parents. They can just say, this is a relative, that is not a relative. But babies and toddlers, they have to rely on different cues. Did you look at what happens with older kids and parents in related situations? We did a study with children where we showed them a person who had something to share And in some cases, in order to share it, you would have to share saliva, like say an ice cream cone. But in other cases, you wouldn't have to share saliva, so say candies. And one prediction that someone might have is, well, it doesn't matter what they're sharing or how they have to share it. They should always share with family more than friends because there's this genetic relatedness and we should care about people who share our genes. But what we find is that it's only when you're sharing saliva do children predict they'll be sharing between family rather than between friends. Okay. So if they see a scenario where sharing is happening and saliva is being exchanged, 
they're likely to say, oh, those people are family. They're related to each other. Yeah. Or rather, they predict that the person who shares in a way that must involve saliva sharing will share with family rather than friends. This study was conducted in the U.S. Lots of people were involved. But do you think there's a way of broadening it out to look at you know, how this works in other parts of the world? As I mentioned, who's considered family is really different across different cultures. And also the norms around saliva sharing are really different. So one question is whether those early experiences might affect the inferences that infants and toddlers make. So if we tested an eight-month-old in a totally different culture with these exact same stimuli, would they have the same expectations? And if they don't, then what is it about their environment that's leading them to learn different things about how close relationships work? And if they do, how do those early inferences sort of constrain how people think about family? Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Ashley Thomas is a postdoctoral researcher in the Brain and Cognitive Science Department at MIT. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org slash podcast. You can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.